present You Got Anything Stronger? Stories by Gabrielle Union. This is the author. For Kavia James and Saya, I am continually awed by the honor and responsibility of raising free black girls. May you each embrace your vulnerability as your superpower. And may I not falter as I attempt to lead by example. Introduction. When I published my first book, We're Going to Need More Wine, in 2017, I opened by saying that it felt like you and I were on a first date. We each brought our expectations, not sure if this was going to go anywhere. Well, we've progressed in our courtship, and this book is like us going away for that first weekend together. Because just as you think you know someone, it turns out you actually have no idea who a person really is until you've traveled with them. That's when you find out their bathroom habits and if they're really the morning person they claim to be on Instagram. And we also see how much baggage we bring along with us. We are going on a journey, and for this, you are going to need something stronger. I spent a long time planning this trip for you. Separately, we looked at the pictures of the house I picked for us to spend time in. Oh my God, I can't wait for this trip to start, we said. And now we are here, and the house doesn't quite look like it did in the glossy pictures. The beach is farther than the host advertised, the Wi-Fi is wonky, and as we explore the house, we find doors that are locked to us. Still, we nervously assure each other, it's charming. And a few hours in, we realize it actually is. Sometimes the less bright and shiny a home looks, the more it offers. We can appreciate a house for its history what it has weathered and how it's been lived in. See the places where someone has put love into it, the collaboration and the collision of old and new construction. The house has great bones, it just needs tending to. By the end of the first day, as if the house is warmed to us, we find the set of keys to those locked rooms. We are let in, trusted to see the photographs on the wall, the treasured books on shelves, all the signs of life and the good-ass energy that people were so purposeful in creating to fill this place. By the end of the journey, around when we really have a sense of the house and each other, this becomes our place. As a lover of memoirs and biographies, I have benefited from authors revealing themselves so that, as readers, we can see ourselves. The truths collected in those pages, typed out letter by letter, as they were lived moment to moment, built a community of kindred strangers. I owe these writers a debt. And while I can never repay them, I can at least honor them by sharing my own truths here with you. Readers gather the courage to become storytellers and the lifeline is passed person to person, book by book. The message remains, keep going. There are people on the sidelines who will heckle us lingering on the fringe just long enough to hear a half a truth and twist even that into a weapon to run amok with. I know from fellow readers who found kinship in my first book that efforts to shame me, in comments I probably never even saw, sent the message that it's too dangerous to be honest. Your story has no value, certainly not when you weigh it against the cost. The emotional toll of telling your truth or the discomfort it might cause someone hearing it. Better to be silent 
and remain alone. You are not. We are here together in this moment and we can have compassion for each other. But of course, that starts with giving it to ourselves. That is an ongoing project for me. One that I have had to continually start over and over again from scratch through the events of my life collected here in this book. There's always something that lands you on your ass, even success, which comes with its own challenges. You think, there's no way I can move on from this. I will never recover. I will never be the same. No, you won't be the same. Life, it turns out, is a series of many deaths and thankfully, rebirths. You have to grieve the person you were before and I have to acknowledge that I am not the same woman I was when I wrote to you four years ago. If you thought you knew me then, you are not alone. I thought I knew me too. So, let's raise a glass as we start our trip. Here's to getting to know each other better. One, loved even as a thought. So, where were we? Right, you and I left off in October 2017 when my first book came out. The weeks before the release were filled with dreams of loss. Pets dying, my husband leaving me, babies not being born. My therapist told me those dreams were my soul preparing for my true self to emerge after letting go of my grief. In the book, I had finally spoken openly about my fertility journey. I was having second thoughts. In fact, so many thoughts they were organizing to go on strike. But I knew I had to stay honest because I didn't want other women going through IVF to feel as alone as I did. I had suffered in isolation, having so many miscarriages that I could not give an exact number. Strangers shared their own journeys and heartbreak with me. I had led with the truth and it opened the door to compassion. But from then on, it seemed every article about me used the phrase I had offered. I have had eight or nine miscarriages. This was always followed closely by my age, which at that time was 44. At least that stopped reporters from asking the question I got at every red carpet. When are you and Dwayne gonna have a baby? But my openness about pregnancy loss led journalists, friends, and strangers at the supermarket to cock their heads and ask a new question. It was presented casually, but not offhand. No, this was a statement disguised as a question that people thought I needed to hear right now. Why don't you go the surrogacy route? Each time this was presented, I felt the constant public prodding to acknowledge my body's failures. Just let some other more capable woman get the job done because you're not capable. It wasn't my imagination. In life's many comment sections, it was clear that I had wasted enough of everyone's time. The messages were that I had prioritized my career and now I was too old to have a kid. In fact, I owed that to Duane. I had robbed him of this child because I was an older woman, almost 10 years older than Dee. And I had to have known that my window was limited. The reality is that I had been diagnosed with adenomyosis one year before, with the gag being that I'd had it since my early 20s. It was Dr. Kelly Beck, a freakishly intelligent, 
no-nonsense reproductive endocrinologist in LA who finally accurately diagnosed me with what every other doctor had missed. Before meeting her, I had gone through multiple rounds of IVF with leading doctors around the country. When you are in their offices, you stare at the holiday cards behind them. Plump babies with beaming, relieved parents. Each baby is counted, with numbers reported to the CDC and officially tabulated to define that fertility clinic's success rate. For the desperate like me, the CDC website has a handy table showing every clinic's numbers. Picking one now at random, I see it says, pregnancies, 225. And then, just below, deliveries, 177. Then that gets divvied down to patients using their own eggs and those using donor eggs. Those success rate numbers are everything to a doctor. And keeping them up is why doctors don't always want to work with older women or women with unexplained infertility. When a clinic prefers winners only, there isn't much incentive to find an explanation. We, the worst cases, are simply weeded out. But Dr. Beck saw the real issue at the first ultrasound, my uterus up there on a flat screen in her exam room. Oh, she said. So you have adenomyosis. What's that? She pointed at the screen, right at this little black spot in a black and white ocean. You can see right there. It's endometriosis of the muscle. My endometrial tissue, which lines the uterus, had grown into the muscular wall of my uterus. She explained that as the fetus grows, the adenomyosis covers it like a blob. It was also responsible for my low ovarian reserve. Dr. Beck asked what my periods had been like. I told her in my early 20s, I'd gotten used to them lasting for a third of the month, passing huge clots and bleeding through overnight pads. Bleeding like I'd been shot in the vagina. Doctors had prescribed birth control to regulate my period. Not mentioning birth control is great at contraception, but not so great at treating heavy periods. It causes the absence of a period. What many people mistake for their regulated period is just breakthrough bleeding from taking the placebo in the final week. Then as soon as I wanted to start trying for a baby around 2013, I was advised to cut out the middleman, nature, and start IVF because of my age. At 40, I'd come off the pill, then took a seat on a roller coaster of hormone injections. And then came the miscarriages. It would have been impossible for me to tell if my uncommonly long periods were just my body returning to whatever issue I had before I started using birth control. Dr. Beck pointed to the ultrasound again. So I would say it started in your early 20s then. It's pretty pronounced, so I doubt this just arrived. I don't know how anyone would have missed this. I looked at Dr. Beck. My world was suddenly slow motion. She crossed her arms. I looked at her pearl earrings, her hair tied back. I tried to focus on these details, but I was now adrift in that ocean on the screen, overcome all at once by waves of clarity, relief, and grief. Later, there would be anger that I sat in those offices of the world's leading IVF doctors, and all they saw was my age. There was no investigation into any other cause for my miscarriages, and I was never correctly diagnosed or treated. The first time we were pregnant, it was All-Star Weekend years before. We called everyone and told my stepchildren, Zaire, Dada, Davion, and 
Zaya. We shared our joy, and then it was snatched away. After me, I would say the kids took it the hardest. Zaire and Dada were preteens, and Zaya was seven. It was brutal because, in addition to loss, we also had to explain the concept of miscarriage. They took it as a death of a sibling they had never met, and they had never experienced the death of anyone close to them. How were they to feel about the absence of someone they never knew? After that, we stopped telling anyone when I was pregnant, which was often. There were times this would happen naturally, and times I would get pregnant with embryos implanted through IVF. I isolated myself, wishing I didn't even have to involve Dwayne. Just deal with the shots and the positive pregnancy tests and the eventual spotting that signaled the beginning of another end. The reason I can't tell you how many miscarriages I have had is that my life became one long loss. I numbed myself, growing used to the fact that life was not a series of heartbreaks, but an unending feeling of failure and rejection. I realized I was staring at Dr. Beck. I looked down. The worst thing about hope is that it remains to taunt you just out of reach. I still tried everything, not just IVF, but bargaining with God. What had I done that God decided I was just not worthy? Was this some karmic or cosmic retribution? I had consulted healers, one of whom had told me, if we tap into your spiritual core, do a clearing, I bet we can get you to a place where you can conceive and carry. When all these measures failed, rituals, herbs, crystals, full moon chants, when I did all of the things you could possibly think of and none of them worked, maybe that just meant I was a bad person and bad people were not worthy. I returned my eyes to the ultrasound, the black dot. So what do I do? I could tell Dr. Beck was solutions oriented. Your best chance for a healthy baby would be surrogacy. I nodded, silently. I was not ready to do that. I wanted the experience of being pregnant, to watch my body expand and shift to accommodate this miracle inside me. Is that what it would be to experience true oneness with another being? I wanted my heart to be in sync with her, to beat for her and then with her. I also wanted the experience of being publicly pregnant. Simon & Schuster Audio presents Around the Way Girl, a memoir by Taraji P. Henson with Janine Milner, read by the author. Chapter 1 
fearless. Let my mother tell it. All that I am and all that I know is because of my daddy. A declaration that some might find shocking considering the list of negative attributes that floated like a dark cloud over my father's short, hard-lived life. During his 58 years on this good green earth, Boris Henson, born and reared in Northeast D.C., had been homeless and broke, an alcoholic and physically and mentally abusive to my mother during their five years together, plus prone to hot tempers and cool-off periods in the slammer. With that many strikes against his character, I can imagine that it's hard for some to see the good in who he was, much less how any comparison to him might be construed as a compliment. But my daddy wasn't average. Yes, there are plenty of fathers who, grappling with their demons, make the babies and leave the mamas and disappear like the wind without a care in the world about the consequences. The scars run deep. That, however, is not my tale to tell. The truth is, no matter how loud the thunder created by his personal storms, my father always squared his shoulders, extended his arms, opened his heart, and did what was natural and right and beautiful. He loved me. My father's love was all at once regular and extraordinary, average and heroic. For starters, he was there. No matter his circumstances, no matter what kind of fresh hell he was dealing with or dishing out, <laughs> he was there. Even if he had to insist upon being a part of my life. One of my earliest memories of my dad is of him kidnapping me. It happened when I was about four years old. Shortly after my father dragged my mother by her hair into his car while threatening to kill her, I'm told that the only thing that kept her from being dragged down the street with her body hanging out of his ride was my aunt's quick thinking. She pulled the keys out of the ignition before my father could speed away. He was angry because more than a week earlier, my mother, fearful that my father would follow through on a threat to kill her, packed up a few of our belongings in a brown paper bag and plotted a speedy getaway. She wanted to divorce him and bar him from seeing me until he got himself together and handled his bouts of addiction and anger. But my father wasn't having it. Nothing and nobody was going to keep me away from my baby girl, he used to tell me when he recounted the days when my mom and I disappeared. He said he even took to the top of buildings throughout our hard scrapple southeast D.C. neighborhood with binoculars to see if he could spot us. We were long gone. Though hiding out where he didn't think to look, back and forth between his parents' home in Northeast D.C. and his sister's place in Nanjimoy, a small town in Southern Maryland, it took my dad more than a week to track us down at my aunt's place. And when he finally made it over there, he waged a war on her front door, banging and hollering like a madman, demanding to see me, his daughter. Let me see my baby, he yelled. Taraji, come see your daddy. I was in the television room, which was in the back of the apartment, in a thin pair of pajamas watching television and pulling a comb through my doll's hair when I heard my father screaming my name. That doll didn't have a chance. I left it. The comb, a brush, a bowl of barrettes and baubles right there in the middle of the floor and started rooting around the recliner for my sneakers with the flowers on them. When my mom, a naturally gorgeous cocoa beauty with a beautiful halo of hair, 
rushed into the room to check on me. Come here, she said, scooping me up into her arms. She sat on the edge of the couch, rocking side to side, her palm warm and slightly sweaty, pressed my head against her chest. The thud of her heartbeat tickled my ear. I was much too young to understand the dynamics of my parents' relationship, that my mother was running for her life after he'd lost his temper one too many times and hit her. Nor did I understand that my father was violating my mother's wishes and scaring her half to death by dropping by unannounced and demanding time with me. All I knew was that my father was at the door and he wanted to play, that he would once again, as he always did, sprinkle magic on what would have been an average day. Try as she might, and despite my aunt's pleas not to open the door, my mother couldn't ignore the scene my dad was making, the banging and screaming. He even left and came back with a police officer, someone my father, who was working as a cop at the time, knew on the force. To placate him and keep my aunt, I'm sure, from becoming the laughingstock of the neighborhood, my mother finally slowly walked to the front door with me in her arms. Look, she said, seething, you have got to stop it with all this noise, please. You can see her for a few minutes, but then you have to go. Dad, burly and strapping, standing at, well, over six feet tall, didn't give my mother a chance to put me in his arms. He snatched me and took off running into the winter chill, me dressed in nothing but those pajamas. Nothing could stop him. Not my mother's screams, not the neighbors peering out of their front doors and rushing down their driveways to get a glimpse of the Negro theater unfolding on the street. Not threats from his fellow officer who pointed his gun and considered shooting my father. Definitely not common sense. Where after all was he going to go? His home situation was sketchy, his money was funny, and really, the chance of him taking proper care of a four-year-old was slim to nil. Yet none of that mattered. He wanted to be with his daughter. I thought we were about to go on one of the many fun and funny adventures we always embarked on together. Whether that was going for a ride on his motorcycle or taking a walk in the park. Never once did it cross my four-year-old mind that something was wrong. That we were like Bonnie and Clyde on the run. When Dad took off down the street, I wasn't scared. I was happy to be in his arms, so strong and thick and grand. My father's getaway was short-lived, though. I'm going to call the cops on your ass, my mother yelled down the street after him as she and the police officer jumped in his cruiser. From the front seat of that cop car, my mother searched frantically for me and my father for hours, unaware that he'd stolen me away to a friend's house somewhere in the same neighborhood. It was my dad's friend who convinced him to let go of that passion and make way for common sense. There was no way he'd be able to get away with stealing his daughter from his wife, and he finally acknowledged that. Grudgingly, he brought me back to my pleading mother's waiting arms. I'll come see you another time, baby girl, Dad said as my mother rushed away from him. I love you. Daddy loves you. Don't you ever forget that. What he did was wrong. I can see that now as an adult. Still, I hold tight to my belief that at the time, my father was a good guy who simply wasn't very diplomatic about his wants and needs versus his rights and a tad immature when it came to understanding how to get what he wanted from others. My mother was the one who would try to reason with him, 
she'd tell him time and again, if you want full custody of your daughter, go to court and say, I'm her dad and I deserve rights too. But you don't come knock on the door and run off in the wind with your daughter because that's not going to work. Get it together and we can talk. As an adult, when I think of my parents' polar opposite personalities, I say to myself, how in the hell did they ever meet? She's quiet, thoughtful, methodical. He was loud and full of drama, quick to say and do the first thing to come to mind. He wasn't trying to hurt anybody. It's not as if he were robbing banks or knocking people upside the head and taking what was theirs. Quite the contrary. He was a Vietnam vet and an artist at heart. And when his finances were flush, he made good money as a metal fabricator, installing metal bars on windows of houses throughout the metro D.C. area. But my father also was a victim of the lack of support provided for Vietnam vets who served their country, only to come home to a nation still reeling from political and racial turmoil. To say nothing of that shady Reaganomics math, the only thing that trickled down to him during the Reagan administration was a decrease in the lucrative contracts that sustained him financially. No one could afford window bars and fancy iron fences and front doors anymore. And when the middle class didn't have money, dad didn't have money. Soon enough, the checks stopped coming and he couldn't pay the rent, at which point the entirety of his apartment was dumped out onto the street. Getting another job to keep a roof over his head was near impossible. As he had a record, a knot of misdemeanors he'd gotten for a couple of street fights made it difficult for him to secure a gig that would give him enough cash to live on 